Hello, I am Donna Freeman, the founder of Yoga in My School, and this is the Yoga in My School podcast. I appreciate you coming and having a listen. Thank you for your likes, your shares, your comments, and your ratings. It truly is a blessing as it helps others to find us. The purpose of the Yoga in My School podcast is to empower you to share yoga and mindfulness with youth. Through the archives and this episode in particular, I know that you will receive inspiration, knowledge, and tools to help you do so. We also are big fans of building community, and we love finding people who are doing amazing things in the kids' yoga community worldwide. So if you know of someone, or maybe you are someone, who are doing something incredible and you'd like to share it, feel free to reach out. You can email me, Donna, at yoganmyschool.com with ideas for upcoming episodes. Appreciate you listening. Have a wonderful day, and enjoy this episode. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Donna Freeman, and you've joined us today for Reflections 2010 with Cora Wen. It is our pleasure to welcome Cora, a self-proclaimed yoga crone, to our show today. Hello, Cora. Hi, Donna. How are you doing? I'm doing wonderfully yourself. I'm good. Are you cold up there in Canada right now? It's actually only about minus five, so that's a nice warm day up here. (laughs) (laughs) But I know you've had a fantastic um, 2010. It has just been kind of a whirlwind year for you. Um, And you kicked it off with, uh, Shirsasana challenge that you kind of threw the gauntlet down on Yoga Dork. Thank you, Yoga Dork. Um, and where did your love affair with headstands begin? Um, let's see. I started doing headstands, oh gosh, early on in my yoga practice. Um, so in the 90s, um, probably early 90s, maybe mid 90s, I can't quite remember. Um, but I, I started doing headstands when I was studying with Eric Schiffman quite intensively. And it just was something that, you know, I knew that everyone, um, all the yogis at that time, all my Iyengar friends did, and it was just always considered, you know, the king of poses, and it's a very, very much a yoga pose. There's no other mm-hmm. modality that does headstands, per se, Um I mean, gymnastics does some, but really headstand signifies yoga. So that was a pose that I had always kind of wanted to do and was really terrified of doing. And like many people, um, I thought I was going to be the first person to kill myself, you know, falling over in a headstand. (laughs) So um, the first time I ever did headstand was with Eric um, Schiffman in class. And I walked up. um, He said, why don't you try taking a straddle to walk up? You have all the things to do, you know, to... I mean, this is for freestanding in the middle of the room. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I went in the straddle and I walked up, and as soon as I was aligned, uh, my legs just floated up. Mm-hmm. And it was such an exhilarating experience, Donna. I mean, really, 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 really exhilarating that I was standing on my head. And I really literally just floated up as soon as my body was in alignment. And um, it felt really stable. Um, I learned 
with Eric, I, I really learned how to get stable in headstands. He challenged me one time to um, go up in headstand, take my legs apart, you know, in Upavishta Konasana, um, <clears throat> like in a straddle and then back again. And so we he had seen some gymnasts, some Russian gymnasts doing it. And I said, okay, so how many? Um, first it was do it 20 times. And then I actually, um, he challenged me to do it to 100. I think he was joking. Oh, my but, goodness. But I didn't take it as a joke, and so I used to practice doing that a hundred times, um, taking your legs from straight up to straddle and then back, and, then um, back. and that teaches you a lot about stability. Yeah, of course, right. <laughs> so once once you learn to be stable straight, then you can start doing variations. So I feel very stable in headstand, and one of the reasons that I do it a lot um, too is that. It really gives me a new view. I mean, my practice, I practice headstands, and it always gives me a new view if I'm feeling kind of stagnant in my mind, in my body. A headstand, any inversion will give you that sensation of once your heart is above your head, it really gives you a very different view and uplifted view of the world. And when I do headstands in the crazy places that I do headstands, I get a completely different view then I do right side up. So I connect with the insects. I mean, there's been times when I've just seen a whole life of insects, ants and um, leeches, (laughs) different bugs that that are on the ground. You're really connecting with the earth. You're seeing the grass. You're seeing the sky from a different view. I've done it in some very dangerous places, like up in the Himalayas, up on a... On a mountainside that's ten thousand feet up, and that gave me a completely different view of the sky and the mountains. Yeah, I know. You, I've seen some of the pictures of the places that you've done headstands, um, and it's often kind of in the middle of hubbub of regular life. And so, how do people react to these random acts of yoga that you perform in, you know, Times Square? Well, um, I was. I call it PDA, public display of asana. Um, I think that someone on Facebook, one of my Facebook friends and Twitter friends, I think it was Sarah Cole that that said that the first time. I I really love that. And for one thing, I can't see myself and how others are responding because I'm on my head and I'm upside down and I can't see their feet. But my boyfriend takes pictures, um, Jack, and the people respond differently. The funniest thing is most people try to pretend that's very normal. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So most people try to walk by and just kind of pretend that everything's normal. Usually the people that respond and sort of get playful are younger or just have a different attitude about things. So we've actually had people interact quite funny with pictures with me upside down. Mm -hmm. That's happened in Ireland, in Thailand, in, um, you know, Death Valley, in New York City, in all kinds of places. But a lot of times people just walk by and they pretend that they don't notice. And then sometimes security comes and tells me that I'm doing something wrong. Like the first time that happened, I remember I was upside down and I heard my boyfriend Jack chatting with the security and they kept on saying, you know, you can't do that. 
And he kept on saying, do what? And finally they just said, you can't take pictures. (laughs) Because I think that people get upset because they don't know what you're doing. It's something different, potentially scary to them. To them, not to me, but to them. I think there's some liability things. There are certain things that I don't do when I'm in the U.S. because I know that we're much more Sue happy and there's more legalities, mm-hmm. like the escalator. Um, yes. I did that in another country because I think that in the U.S., inside a mall or inside a public place, a lot of times they may they may have issues with that. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> Although you in Canada may not. Yeah, they may not. I've taken some good shots in Canada, actually, in Toronto, around the streets, and people, Canadians, are very playful with me in there. Yeah, we tend to be fairly easygoing. Yeah, I know. It's just south of the border. We just have our stuff down there. (laughs) (laughs) So that's how you started the year off, and then you ended the year with this huge trip through the Himalayas and Southeast Asia. Yeah, it was my fourth trip I think my third time taking people to the Himalayas, and that's my one of my many international trips, but it's the third time taking people to the Himalayas, and we went to <coughs> northern India to a state called Sikkim. Mm-hmm. It's a tiny state that's tucked into the lap of the Himalayas. It's where you are at the foothills of um, Kanchanzunna, the third highest mountain in the world, which I called K3, because it's the third highest, and it begins with a K, and no one can pronounce it. And it's this extraordinary state where it's tucked in between Nepal, Bhutan, India, and Tibet, China. And I fell in love with it, I guess, four years ago when I first went there. And it's extraordinary because it's quite untouched when you go deep up north into the border areas. And there's so few places in the world, Donna, that you would ever experience people never having seen other peoples. Mm -hmm. This is one of them. I mean, there was a young gal the first trip that was blonde, and when she went out Mm -hmm. walking, she ended up at a house, and people were just brushing her hair and braiding it because they had never and touching her skin because they'd never interacted with someone light-skinned and light-haired. I mean, I'm talking about five kilometers from the Tibet-China border, deep into the Himalayas where the road closes a lot of the year. During the winter, it's closed, and then monsoons, it's closed. The roads completely wear down both in the winter and monsoons because of the, the terrain. There are roads that are just off the side of the cliff. There's, you know, four cars trying to make their way across. And I think that somebody watched a show while we were in in, uh, in India or somebody a friend sent something saying that those roads are some of the most dangerous roads in the world, That those roads up there. Mm-hmm. But I like taking people there, <laughs> not not to put them in danger, but because I feel that that really connects us with a life, a people's, and a way of being that we don't see anymore and really brings us back to basics. Mm-hmm. 
you know, really gets us out of our comfort zone and demands us to examine ourselves in, in a Absolutely. Way. I mean, there's just nothing that's the same. There's no part of it that's the same. And so from the Sakim area, we go um, into Sakim, then I take you into North Sakim, West Sakim, so you have incredible views of the Himalayan range. I mean, just extraordinary views. There were many days that we were just waking up um, in West Sakim, Pretty much every morning in West Sakim, we woke up to this extraordinary view of the whole Himalayan range and then practiced on this outside deck facing the mountains. I mean, it was wet, it was cold, it was, you know, in, you know, hard ground, you know, all of that, dirty, all of that. But we were standing outside practicing yoga facing the Himalayan range at dawn. And that's an extraordinary experience. So people hate it when they're there. I mean, it's it's extraordinarily difficult. People cannot bear it. It's awful. You get really cranky. Nothing is working. You know, blah blah blah. But I always say this to people: when you go home, when you digest it, check back with me in six months or a year and tell me how you feel then. Because, like all travel, the difficulty fades, or like life, often. Some of those difficult moments fade, and what you are left with is that resonance, the resonance of what you felt. And it's pretty amazing there. So from there we went um, to Bhutan, to the kingdom of Bhutan. And um, for your listeners, Bhutan is a small country that's, if you don't know where it is, it's between Nepal, um, China, India, close to Burma, um, north of um, there. And it also is, it's the last Buddhist kingdom. It's You've probably heard of gross national happiness. It's the country yeah. that has gross national happiness. The king, there's the fifth king of Bhutan, and he's um, a young man. He's 32. He looks like an Asian Elvis. He's incredible. He's just really taken, the, his father and he have really taken this country and kept it, pristine in the agrarian culture, in the culture of the Bhutanese. It's this extraordinary window into another life. It's also the least traveled country in the world and the most expensive country to travel into. Interesting challenges. Yeah, there's a royalty tax. There's a $250 per day per person tax inside the country. So it, it's a it, you know it's quite a foreign uh, place to go into, and um, from so I stayed there for two weeks. I stayed in Sikkim for two weeks, and then I went to teach in Bangkok at the Yoga Journal Conference mm-hmm. in Bangkok. And um, it's my second year teaching there. It's wonderful to connect with all the Thai people and the other like Malaysians, uh, Singaporeans. Um, Hong Kong, Taiwanese people that come in to the conference. There's a few American teachers. There's Japanese teachers. There's teachers from India. So it's a really nice international conference. And it's Yoga Journal, so it's, um, you know, they've really taken, done a nice job on it. Mm-hmm. And um, I have a, a nice following there in the Thai community. I really appreciate my Thai students. And I appreciate being able to teach Asian people, especially Asian women, because I have a real affinity for how it feels to be an Asian woman, both physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, and the different challenges that we have in Asia that we do in the West. 
So I really appreciate teaching there. And then I taught in a few studios in Bangkok, connected more with my students. And um, then I went to northern Thailand, to Chiang Mai, and I taught at a resort there with some for some friends of mine that are managing this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place in Chiang Mai, this resort, Dara Devi. It's run by the Mandarin Oriental chain, and it's on 61 acres of beautifully landscaped um, grounds that this man basically built. He built a temple. I mean, he built... A museum. It's 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 the most gorgeous place I've I've really seen. I mean, it's he basically built like a temple, except that it is someplace you're staying. All the buildings are visually appealing to the eye. All the um, the tree, every tree is you know has orchids like dripping off of it. I mean, it's quite amazing. It's it's really um, quite a haven. So, and then I came home. So I do feel extraordinarily fortunate. I mean, I can't imagine that my life could unfold this way. And every day I'm grateful for it. You know, I mean, it's been 10 years since I left the banking world where I used to work. And about 20 years that I've been in yoga. And I never would have imagine this when I left my bank job as a VP, you know, and I thought I was never going to quite make the living the first year. And to be able to have this lifestyle now where I get to share something that I love, go to amazing places, connect with wonderful people, and share this thing we call yoga. Well, it sounds like you do a remarkable job at what you do, and I know I have been a beneficiary of reading your articles and, and, and you know, delving into your insights. Well, thank you. Yeah. I mean, I just try to talk about what I experience and see, and I hope that it might just be helpful. I also try to talk about things that might be helpful to others. You know, the way that I experience things um, as a journey rather than as myself. Because it's not very interesting to hear about me and, you know, what I do. But it might be interesting to hear what I think about something or how difficult something is. You know, or the path that we experience as people and as yogis. Mm-hmm. So. One of the things I love about what you do is the way that you combined, combine East and West. Um, you have, you know, you grew up in Hong Kong. You have um, this Eastern heritage that you bring, and yet you do live in California, <laughs> and right. you're in the banking world. And so you, you have your, you know, one foot in each, each world, and yet you combine them in such a beautiful way. And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the, the way that you view life and how you kind of pull on both of those traditions? Well. I guess one of the things I always say is that I'm a multi-culty, you know, masala kid because I was brought up in Asia, Europe, and the United States. So, uh, you know, 
in many ways that's very difficult because you don't feel at home in anywhere and you're kind of a confused um, you know mix up of everything. I think people that spend a lot of time in the military growing up are are often like that because they're going to many different cultures, but they have at least an environment that's familiar for me. We traveled and moved a lot as a child, and so I grew up in Asia in Hong Kong and Taiwan, then we moved to Switzerland, then we moved to the u s and we kind of went back and forth like we came to the u s for one year in Hawaii, and then we moved back to Taiwan so I was always pushed back and forth into two cultures, so I always felt that I was straddling two cultures. I always picture Hanuman you know as he mm-hmm. jumps across to Lanka, and it's that sensation of just being one foot, as you said, in one culture and the other foot in the other and so in many ways, I never quite feel like I fit in anywhere, and I'm always trying to look at ways to describe or experience those things around me and make sense of them. So I guess in some ways I'm always looking at how things are similar rather than looking at how things are different. So if I'm experiencing a food, I might, a new food, I might experience it as, wow, that's interesting, hmm, here in this country, you know, they eat a lot of sweet flavors and salt flavors, but there's no bitter. There's no bitter flavor. Ah, that's interesting. Ah, it must be a east-west thing. You know, in the west, we don't like flavors that are bitter or pungent or astringent. But in the east, we like flavors that are that are very strong. Um, we like to mix flavors in the East. Ah, in the West, we like more independent flavors. Ah, is that like the culture? Mm-hmm. You know, is that come out in people? In the East, we sit on the floor. That shows up in the hips, in the bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, in the West, we sit in chairs. In the West, we wear shoes. In the East, we don't often wear shoes as children. That shows up, um, interestingly enough, I noticed that this time in Thailand, it really shows up in the pronation versus supination of the foot in yoga. Like I saw that just predominance of one thing in the West and one thing in the East. And that to me is very interesting. So I'm always looking at, you know, what is it that's different, but then what is it that's similar? So to me it's like, oh, wow, okay, so there's a habit. There's a habit then of people that we have in the way that we walk, in the way that we sit, that shows up in our bodies, that shows up in our lifestyles. So how can I look for the thing that brings us together? You know, I wrote an article on Elephant Journal and on my blog that was talking about Chinese medicine and Ayurveda and the five tastes, the similarity that there are five and that there are tastes. Um, They're not the same, but there's an interesting that you know, we see these tastes as something very important in the modality. And it was interesting because I had some people that really applauded me for that, and then I had some people, particularly Ayurvedic practitioners, that really gave me a hard time and said that I was confusing things and I was making too broad and general of a statement. Um, and, 
you know, I've done that before with um, 108, like the meaning of 108, or yeah. um, or I think you mentioned before to me personally about sevens and um, the sacred number seven. And so it's interesting because I'm always looking at ways to bring in the East and the West and to look at how we can evolve to understand one another better. But some people aren't happy that I do that. Um, and I guess in many ways, because I'm a child of the 60s, that <laughs> ethnicity, you know, like the hippie, ethnic hippie was, mm-hmm. you know, very much the vogue. And people going off to India to go guru hopping was something that I saw when I was a kid in the U.S. as well as in Asia. So growing up in Hong Kong, I might have seen sadhus on the street. But in America, people were running off to go find those same kind of sadhus, you know. <laughs> so I think that in some ways I've always um, been kind of exposed to a multiculti and an acceptance of different cultures. And growing up in Hong Kong, Hong Kong was British-owned when I grew up, and it was very much an expat life. So we spoke English. I went to English schools. Again, that's... Um, something that is very much about blending and Chinese things, you know, chinoiserie is very common in so much of European decorative arts. So I've always seen that, oh, look, there are some Chinese-looking things on that, you know, Louis XIV's cabinet. Like, oh, those flowers look like they're peonies, and peonies don't grow here. Ah, that was some influence. We spent a lot of time in museums when we were children. My mother was a big art fan, so I I looked at a lot of different artwork. And particularly in decorative arts, you see a lot of mix in, you know, early 17th century, 16th century stuff. Um, And I guess in some ways I, I bring together a lot of the ideas because I think sometimes very Asian, but then I think very Western. Like, I want logic. I want explanation. I don't want just to be told, like, oh, that's the energy meridian. You know, that's the liver. Okay, you know. Oh, yeah, I'm needling your leg for the stomach. Mm -hmm. Like, when I go to an acupuncturist, an Asian acupuncturist, Chinese acupuncturist, they never explain anything. Yeah, they just, I'm always asking they just, questions. They just, they just in your in your body, right? Yeah. And they don't explain it. So I'll ask things. I'll even ask in Chinese. And they'll just kind of say, oh, it's the liver. You know, oh, this is for your head. But they won't say much about it. Whereas a Western acupuncturist will give you a lot of information mm-hmm. about what they're doing. Now, I don't like Western acupuncturists because they use small needles. <laughs> <laughs> Go for the bang, <laughs> and I like to have a lot of chi movement because the Chinese use mm-hmm. big metal steel needles and they move the chi a lot because yeah. we like more sensation, just like we like tastes that are strong. Mm-hmm. You know, one of my favorite vegetables is bitter melon. It's very bitter. That's not a taste that we usually eat in the West. Yeah. So you know, I I'm always looking at what what in me is is mixed up, and then how can I explain it? So I started getting talking about Chinese medicine in my yoga teaching because I was always looking at Ayurveda, which is the common thing that we study when we're yogis, 
And I kept on looking at Ayurveda and trying to translate it into mm-hmm. Chinese medicine. Yeah. yeah, to what you were familiar with. Right. And then finally I just said, you know what, I'll just talk about Chinese medicine because that's easier for me. I don't have to translate it, and it's just much clearer to me. And then also I started using Chinese medicine energy meridians because it was a language that I could explain what I felt. Mm-hmm. So when I experience the yoga, I feel something. But then to explain it, I needed some verbiage. And Chinese medicine, the meridians give me a language to explain it. And I guess in some ways, you know, I was thinking about this question, and I I can't help it. I'm Chinese. I grew up in a Chinese household. You know, I grew up where I went into buildings and everybody would say, oh, the feng shui isn't good in here. Not because anybody had told us what was supposed to be where, but because it didn't feel good. Mm-hmm. We walked into Chinese gardens, and there was a harmonious feeling to them, Japanese gardens as well. Asian gardens have a flow. There's an ebb and flow of energy. There's an ebb and flow in eating. You eat certain foods at certain seasons. So I had always grown up with Chinese medicine by, you know, your, your ankle is hurt, let's stick some needles in it. Um, you know, you've got a stomachache, here, drink the soup. When I started getting my cycle, we always took Chinese medicine for cramps, not, you know, whatever pills the the Caucasian doctors would give us. Um, there was just a sensation of there's harmony mm-hmm. in life and there's harmony in action. And honestly, when I first started doing yoga practice, the asana practice, because I came through meditation, it was the first time I really felt the expression of everything that I'd been taught in the Buddhist practice. So it was like a harmonious expansion of the mental practice. And that's what I want to share with people. So sometimes it makes sense. Um, sometimes it doesn't. You know, I, I test stuff out on my public class at home, and there's sometimes when I come in, I'm talking about stuff, and they'll say, Cora? We don't know what you're explaining. Please, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, please drop them. down 20 notches. Mm-hmm. So I kind of use that as my experiment playground um, to try out different sequences, to try out different verbiage and talk to them about things. I mean, they've heard about the kidneys for, you know, years. But, yeah. I, you know, my, my traveling workshops have maybe started hearing about the kidneys in the last three or four years. Well, we have run out of time so quickly. Oh. Oh. Oh, we didn't even get to do your rapid fire two minutes. I know. Do you want to do it? Sure, let's do it because we probably have enough time. Okay. All right, so two minutes with Cora Wen. Okay, so what is what was your favorite TV show as a child? Um, um, <laughs> I guess The Addams Family. Okay. A pet peeve. Pardon? A pet peeve. People that talk or act about things that they're not, you know, like if you talk like if you talk about things that you don't really understand, but you talk about it like an expert, like sort of mm-hmm. being being yeah. something that you're not. Being, How do you like your eggs, I guess? Oh, yeah. How do you like your eggs? Um Pretty much any way. It depends on the day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
oddest thing you've ever eaten? Um, oddest thing I've ever eaten? Um, probably some, like, weird fried bug that I tried yep. in mm-hmm. Asia somewhere. I don't know if it was a cricket or a grasshopper. It was some fried bug. I took yep. a little bit of it. It was kind of scary. <laughs> yeah, they're they're crunchy. Uh, best gift you've ever received. Pardon? Best gift you've ever received. Uh, seeing my mother and spending time with her before she passed this earth. Oh, nice. And the flight from hell. Ah, uh, I know the car ride from hell. That was up in the hymn. Um, the flight from hell. You know, I don't. I fly so much that flying has just become another source of meditation. Mm-hmm. But I think one flight that was bad was when I was supposed to go to France and I ended up in Belgium. Okay. Because the plane diverted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but otherwise, you know, travel is travel. Okay, last one. If you had one superpower, what would it be? To be able to catch my anger before it arises. Oh. There you go. All right. Cora, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today, and thank you for sharing um, stories about your 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 travels and and how you gain perspective in life. I think it is a valuable lesson for all of us to learn how to tap into who we really are and to make sense of it. Well, thank you very much, Donna. I really appreciate this show and you know your fortitude in getting this to all happen. I know it takes a lot. So I appreciate everyone and all of your work and Elephant for sponsoring it and um, really look forward to sharing more and hearing more from you. Oh, thank you. Have a wonderful holiday, and all the best with the uh, with the Year of the Rabbit coming up. Yes, maybe we can have a chat about that sometime. That would be really fun. All right. Okay. Have a great Take one. Care. Thank you so much. Happy holidays. You too. This has been yogainmyschool.com with Reflections 2010 with Cora Wen. It's been a pleasure to have Cora with us. If you'd like more information about what she does and the wonderful way that she does it, please visit her website. It is C-O-R-A-W-E-N, CoraWen.com. You can also find her on Facebook and on Twitter. Please have a wonderful holiday. Join us for the remaining interviews. There's six more interviews in this reflection series. If you would like more information about them or to download them, please visit yogainmyschool.com on iTunes, and they are all available there. We'd also like to send a big shout-out to Elephant Journal for helping to sponsor this series and wish you all the best today. Namaste.